on the record on news talk We'll start, as we always do, by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers in our panel in studio this morning. To do just that, Ellen Coyne, senior reporter with the Ireland edition of The Times. Good morning, Ellen. Good morning. Uh, John Isle is a former markets editor of the Sunday Business Post. He's now head of communications for Goodbody. Good morning, John. Thank you. Good and morning. Declan Maher is a security analyst and a former member of the Defence Forces. Good morning to you, Declan. Good morning. Uh, thank you all for coming in to be with us this morning. A quick look at some of the newspaper front pages. Sunday Independent leads, as in fact many of the Sunday papers do today. Ex-Army Isla Bride can return home. A former member of the Defence Forces detained in Syria with her two-year-old child will be allowed to return to Ireland if the Syrian government decides not to prosecute her on suspicion of supporting Islamic State, the Sunday Independent can reveal. However, Lisa Smith, who was a member of the Air Corps, will be subjected to a security assessment if she is returned to Ireland. Philip Bryan, Tom Brady, Maeve Sheen and Eve Horan, all with their names in this story. They say it's also emerged that Miss Smith has made several attempts to secure cash through money transfers to fund her journey home uh, with her child. Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, first-time buyer exemptions to run out within weeks. A leading mortgage expert has warned that he expects mortgage rule exemptions to dry up within weeks, heaping pressure on first-time buyers. Uh, This is broker Michael Dowling, who has told the Sunday Independent that banks are coming under huge pressure to approve applicants for mortgages at more than three and a half times their income values because of the demand for housing. Sunday Business Post, Ronan warns that thousands of Salesforce jobs are at risk over Docklands Height Row. This is developer Johnny Ronan, who has warned that of a threat to thousands of jobs at the US tech giant Salesforce by claiming that there could be quote another Apple fiasco if he's not given permission to increase the height of his mega tower in the Docklands. Salesforce has already announced plans to increase its workforce from 1400 to 2900 over the next five years but the two extra floors that Johnny Ronan is seeking to add could accommodate a thousand further staff and he is looking for that to be expedited. Also below the fold there, controversial plans to demolish Magdalen Laundry resurface. This is by Killian Woods, who reports that the owner of Donnybrook's former Magdalen Laundry has reignited controversial plans to demolish most of the site. A report from the city archaeologist in 2017 found that there was potential for burials to be uncovered at the site. Uh, There has been subsequent uh, audits there. There hasn't been any sign, but there are now plans, he reports, to revive the idea of redeveloping that site. Sunday Times... EU turns the screw. I wondered how long we'd get before Brexit. It's four minutes past 11, but there you go. New record. EU turns the screw as May faces pressure to quit. European leaders have hardened their stance against giving Britain a short-term extension to the March 29th Brexit deadline amid reports that Theresa May is battling to save her premiership. But sources in Dublin say EU Prime Ministers are increasingly determined to impose the longest possible extension to the Brexit negotiation phase of 21 months if MPs vote down the withdrawal agreement on Tuesday and try to extend the negotiations. Uh, also below the fold actually and I'm sure we'll talk to, about this with Off the Wall in the next hour the state of Qatar secretly offered $400 million to FIFA just 21 days before world football's governing body controversially decided that the 2022 World Cup would be awarded to Qatar the files seen by the Sunday Times show that executives from Al Jazeera the Qatari state-run company signed a television contract making the huge offer just as the bidding campaigns to host the World Cup were reaching a climax uh, some of the, the tabloid press today the Mail on Sunday Isis Bride was radicalised on Facebook the last three words there are in inverted commas the former Irish soldier who was understood to have been detained in northern Syria was radicalised by contacts she made on Facebook according to friends who knew her at the time. The Irish Mail on Sunday has been told that Lisa Marie Smith who has worked on the government jet serving former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern and former President Mary McAleese previously had a little girl with her husband in Tunisia before she travelled to Syria in 2015. The news comes as Leo Varadkar last night repeated his pledge that the government would allow her and her two-year-old son to return to Ireland if that's what she wants. Sunday World also leads with some pictures of uh, Lisa Smith at 2000 
2009 picture of her on a night out before she converted to Islam and 2019 on a screen grab of her speaking to ITV News. And we do have a little bit of audio we're going to play to you. This is Lisa Smith speaking to ITV News uh, in the last couple of weeks talking about exactly how she was enticed to Syria by the propaganda of Islamic State. I say you come, you see the propaganda, the videos. Yani, you want the Islam, you want to come, you want to live in a Muslim country, in a Muslim environment, no music, no uh, smoking, no drinking, no prostitution, no anything like this, you know. And you want clean, clean life like this. And just, this, this is what you want. But sometimes it's not like this. The people don't have food. Uh, there's the struggling like this for food and money and everything's expensive and so I don't know how they keep they're going to keep living. I, I come by myself. I marry the man here. Um, Ellen Coyne, listening to that audio of Lisa Smith speaking to ITV News a couple of days ago, you can either look at it two ways. You can think of that's somebody who's been completely radicalised, who has no interest in life in this part of the world anymore. Or you can hear a certain humanity and say that this is somebody who was vulnerable and just decided to take an offer that was made to them. Which side do you think people will come down on? Uh, I think that uh, people would kind of fall somewhere in the middle with the benefit of, as you said, there's wall-to-wall reporting on this in the Sunday papers today. And a lot of it is pointing out that um, apparently she was radicalised online. And a lot of analysis and reporting also pointing out that a person likely to fall into that is somebody who's already a little bit vulnerable. And I suppose you can see a very obvious parallel between um, Lisa Smith's story and some of the reports in the UK over recent weeks of other young women who travelled from Britain, Mm. Britain, British citizens who uh, were discovered and met with some serious, aggressive populist politics where their citizenship was immediately stripped. Um, There was a huge kind of public anger against them to the point that when it was reported over the weekend that a British woman's three-week-old baby had died, it was met with either incredulousness or almost gleefulness in some parts. And I think uh, that is a stark contrast with the reports in the paper today of the responses from the Irish government. Uh, Leo Varadkar is quoted in the Mail on Sunday making it very clear that he has no intention to strip this woman's citizenship Mm. if she does want to come back, which is reported in some of the papers that she was trying to raise money to come back. Um, He's saying, you know, she wouldn't quite be welcome back. But um, he had said before speaking in broad terms on this issue that he doesn't believe people should be left stateless, that they're Ireland's responsibility and we shouldn't leave them on maybe poorer countries in a refugee camp that doesn't have the resources to deal with her. So the state will examine if it is actually her, if she does want to come back. Um, They'll have to consider whether or not she might have to face trial in Syria. And then obviously the most important thing is, is she a security risk to Ireland? But I think that it's it's quite interesting to notice the difference in reaction between Ireland and the UK with two very similar stories. Declan Power, I suppose a lot of people hearing about this particular instance, they might think that this was a young Western woman who had a reasonably good career, who had uh, served on a government jet, which meant that she's seen a lot of the world, as a lot of members from the Irish Defence Forces seem to do. And they might have thought that someone in her circumstances should be perhaps less... Uh, more more immune if that's the white way or less susceptible to being groomed or radicalised by extremists what do you think? Yeah but I mean if you look at this outside of Ireland there are a number of people from uh, purely western backgrounds there were uh, there was a, a man from Sweden who actually took up arms who had no Islamic background a big burly blonde haired chap like you know who, who stood out like a sore thumb uh, there were a number of women from Germany uh, I think were they, they possibly two sisters I can't remember their names now but you know there are a number of examples of this mm. and what this tells us is that um, radical um, extremist 
activities, whether it's within Islamic groupings, within our own homegrown uh, Republican extremists, or any other you know uh, variety of groups, white supremacists, uh, uh, socialist extremists, fascists, take your pick. Uh, they attract people who have esteem, self-esteem issues, who have gone through a rocky patch, whether it's with drugs, alcohol, or ruptured relationships or whatever. The personal becomes political. And uh, you know, this is a, it's probably a lesson for us to learn. It's timely. There's a course I teach at the moment in city colleges, usually to members of the security forces doing continuing professional development about understanding the fact of the role of sense of victimisation, personal history, as well as ethnic history in terms of how people can be susceptible to this. Now, this lady, she didn't tick all of the boxes, but she ticked a number that probably uh, were more deeply relevant to her in terms of her personal circumstances. The fact that she was in the defence forces for a period is, is, is a kind of irrelevant here in, in many respects in that she so was on you, her way You think out. that it's just a, a convenient thing or that it's a useful narrative to put together about someone's backstory but that it doesn't have any relevance in this case at all? There are there are numerous members of the Defence Forces who have fallen in hard times in terms of uh, you know excessive uh, abuse of different things and this is a variation on the theme. Had she probably stayed uh, and maybe made her, her, her feelings known uh, she, if she stayed within the tribe, I've no doubt that she would have been kind of talked around. Mm. She did make mention about how she was treated. You know, she announced she wanted to convert and she was shown, uh, you know, support and respect for that. You know, converting to Islam is is not a radical act. No, it, not at it's all. unusual. So, of course, the, the defence forces will, uh, you know, support you in whatever religion you practice. But it was the, she wanted to leave because her her belief system of this type of Islam was that she should become a housewife she should it was a very conservative version had she perhaps bumped into the likes of uh, Sheikh Dr. Umar al-Qadri the imam out in Blanchardstown or uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan Noonan down in Galway these are uh, these are religious leaders within Islam who put forward a how Islam is compatible with life in the West. She might, you know, if she had been stewarded and shepherded along, but, but this didn't happen. Whose responsibility is that to be to be made sure that that carries out, though? Who well, is responsible for putting in touch with her for, with more, you know, liberally minded Western voices? Well, nobody can do that unless they can see into the person's head and unless the person seeks uh, seeks help or attention. It's a free and open society. So... This comes back to the point, how do we protect ourselves and our citizens against this kind of thing? And not just with uh, radical Islam, but, Mm. you know, extremist activities. We have plenty of it on our own island, as we're well aware. And I think uh, the state would do well maybe to pay attention to uh, counter extremist projects that uh, are being developed in different parts of Europe. And we should be thinking about developing our own. Uh, So that means that we sensitise people, not just within law enforcement, but within education, within uh, medical practice, Mm. within community development, so that when they spot the seeds, because this is a point I've often made to students in the security forces that I've taught, uh, when you spot, you know, if you want to counter terrorism, it starts with countering extremism, extremism thoughts. We can, we tend to always get fixated with what in the military we call right of bang, you know, after the event. You know, the, the guys who you know, are former colleagues and, you know, the ERU and the range wing who have to kick in the doors and do the double tap and all that kind mm. of thing. Whereas if we were to invest more time or as much time and resources into where communities who are exposed to the threat of radicalisation, uh, the communi- community in general, and sensitise people 
uh, within the areas I've just mentioned, we could counter the seeds of extremism and, you know, take steps. Now, I'm not saying that that will so, purely... But, it, but it's the whole pr- principle of prevention being better than cure, Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this, uh, uh, this young lady's experience is an opportunity for us to devel- delve into this further. I, I think the, the Taoiseach is right. We shouldn't be trying to take people's citizenship off them. They're our responsibility. I mean, if you think back to the basic point of parenthood, you know, if your child screws up, you don't disown them. You have to take responsibility and try and ensure they don't do it again. Bring her home, be humane about it, but be be uh, responsible. If she's transgressed and it, it, it can be brought before a court of law, appropriately prosecute. But she made a mistake. She made a big mistake here. And she's the, the big sufferer. But I don't think she's a threat to our national security. And I, I don't think, you see, there's a spectrum of activities. Obviously, she gave some sort of support to a, a, an odious regime like Islamic State, but it's quite different to the level that maybe the, the, the late lamented Khalid Kelly, formerly Terence Kelly from uh, mm. the Liberties, did where he actually took up arms and, and he paid for that with his life. Um, John Isle, what strikes you as the main themes that jump out from the, the extensive coverage in today's papers? Well, I, well, I think Declan makes, makes a good point there that we have to, you know, um, finally grade our response to this. And, and the fact that she hasn't, say, taken up arms, and as far as any of the reporting in the papers suggests, was never a threat to this country whatsoever. Mm. So she's probably more a threat to herself than to, any, than to yeah, anybody so, else. So we're dealing with the vulnerabilities to her yeah, rather yeah, than pre- to the state. Precisely. And, and there was an interesting detail in the Sunday Times that uh, it was the Muslim community in Loud that first alerted the Gardaí to her radicalization, which they called a self-radicalization, that mm. it wasn't happening within their mosque. It was happening somewhere else mm. where she wasn't supervised actually by the religious community that she had decided to join, but it was happening in, in private, um, which is much harder to police. As, as you said, Declan, you, you, know, you can't get into somebody's, somebody's head like that. Um, on, the, on the citizenship point, I, I would ag- agree completely with the, the approach that the Irish government is taking. You know, citizenship belongs to the citizen. It's not uh, a gift of the state um, and should be irrevocable. And I believe it's one of, the, one of our basic human rights that we're all entitled to have a mm. state. We're entitled to have a citizenship. So what happened in Britain, I think, is really disgraceful. And it's a kind of a, a disowning of responsibility as well, of, uh, as well as a disowning of belonging uh, of those people. Uh, and I think trying to put at arm's length something that happened in your own country like that um, mm. is not really owning up to the responsibility that the state has to citizens. And, and I, I think it's absolutely right to bring her back. And of course, if she has violated a law to prosecute and so forth. Yeah, well, that, that is a point that's raised and it is interesting that, that you mentioned that so many of the papers today focus on the idea of what can we learn from this and that this mm. discussion is very much about, you know, how, how do you make sure that this doesn't happen again in future and that it is being dealt with as a threat to the woman herself, not as a threat to the state itself. But we have one uh, tweet in already from Austin Kavanagh who says that if I were to decide to join an illegal organisation, the IRA for example, I could be sent to jail for that involvement. ISIS is the world's most illegal organisation. I don't think that's a sliding scale, but it is, of course, an, an illegal organisation. It is one of the most inhumane regimes ever. So if she is allowed back, shouldn't she face a, tr- a jail sentence for membership? And I suppose, Ellen, that does raise the point that while everyone might want to be compassionate, if she did, did go with the idea of having some sympathy to a regime like that, then we can't just treat this as a compassionate case, that there are other things to be looked at there. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, Leo Varadkar made it clear it's not like he's going to be a massive liberal with a big ball of cotton wool to wrap her, what, like wrap her <laughs> up in when she comes back. He said he wouldn't use the term welcome. Obviously, if someone has committed a crime, they should be prosecuted for it. But I think, and again, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not, uh, you know, um, you know, I'm just basing this on the coverage that we have today. Mm. It appears quite obvious that she was going because she thought she was going to a kind of Islamic utopia, not because she wanted to go and kill <clears throat> Westerners. Mm. That is, that appears to be what this 
based on all the coverage what this case was so obviously you need to approach these things with nuance but I don't think anyone is saying she needs to be like scooped home and celebrated I think the point is that um, we're all appreciating that just given the fact this story only broke three days ago immediately the way that it's being responded to by politicians and most of the general public is quite uh, nuanced and quite mature and quite responsible um, Declan I just wanted, wanted to take up on one of the points you made there about you know trying the whole prospect of prevention being better than cure mm. and to try and get involved and to, to highlight some of these isn't there a danger that if you try to take a more hands-on approach to communities that might be at more vulnerable of, of being uh, groomed for extremism like this, that you get into a certain amount of profiling where you're always going to be looking at people who are from certain areas or are from certain religions who live in certain parts who might be of a certain mm. ethnicity and that you end up then just having to profile Muslim communities, for example, and, and you know almost treating them, preemptively treating them on the basis of their race rather than any objective criteria. Yeah, if you if you do it incorrectly. But um, one of the things that I, uh, I learned in recent years in a programme that the EU were funding in Nigeria to prevent extremism and radicalisation is that you have to work in a partnership system uh, for, with leaders and, you know, opinion formers within uh, the communities at risk. Uh, so this is not exclusive to just Islamic communities. Mm. Uh, in the Nigerian example, in the de-radicalisation programme that I was involved in at the time, the young members of Boko Haram, the foot soldiers, were easily de- radicalized once you know we kind of got inside the the, the motivation they, they want they were being paid a stipend which gave them a bit of status they could afford to build a small dwelling uh, own some cattle and have a, a wife they had they, they could have a stake in their society so which, it's, it's entirely an economic thing then for them well, no not entirely but, but sorry, in, predominantly. In, in, what I'm saying is it varies so the, the young members of Boko Haram were quite different for example to the radicalized members of Al-Shabaab over in Somalia so one size doesn't fit all you've got to uh, work with uh, interlocutors within the identify suitable interlocutors. So let me come back to the point that you, you made. In this country, for example, if we were to develop, develop a counter extremist program of some sort, then we, we identify people within the communities, not just the Islamic communities. We've got plenty of radical dissident Republican groupings here. What young man today should think it's a good idea to get involved with the real or the new or whatever the hell you want to call them IRA, but yet they do. So we're, we're kind of at a point where we could do something about this for the long term. And it means that you're not targeting communities. You're working in a partnership because the, the people within those communities don't want their young people being sucked into radicalisation. Can I just make, make two other small points related to what you were mm-hmm. saying? The, both the practical and the compassionate thing regarding Lisa Smith is to bring her home and if needs be, a uh, prosecutor. So if she has to serve time, she's serving time here. That would be a hell of a lot more compassionate, I can assure you, than being banged up in somewhere in Syria. And al- argue with that. Also, we learn and we benefit. The second thing is, one of the key learning curves here, we're, we're all focused on her and the, 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 the people who are subject to radicalisation. But our tools of statecraft as a state, I think, are somewhat lacking here. She, as I understand it, uh, had been on the radar in some shape or form since 2011. Now, our force, our state security forces, the security intelligence section within Angarda Shiakana, the uh, J2 section, the dire- director of military intelligence, they're, they're working sometimes in conjunction, sometimes separately. Uh, there are elements within the Department of Foreign Affairs that are relevant here. We've got three separate state agencies. And at the end of the day, nobody really knew where she was, what she was doing. I think it's time we realised it is our responsibility and it's right for the state in order to protect itself and protect our partner states in a way that we know when Irish citizens 
citizens are getting involved in nefarious activity, that we have the skill set and the ability and tradecraft to be able to project uh, our, our, our knowledge into difficult areas like that. I mean, it, it, the, uh, it was on record in one, I think in the Sunday Independent today, that we wouldn't be sending members of the Department of Foreign Affairs out to interview. And I, mm. I think that's sensible. Uh, they're not trained to, to work in these areas. But we need some sort of a state entity that can conjoin, coordinate all of this, and if needs be, develop networks of influence and information in areas where Irish citizens may be at risk or may be at risk of being radicalised or engaging in illegal activities so we can take the appropriate actions more early. And we can't be relying on our partner states for that, which is kind of what we are at the moment, and we can be left in the dark. So we need a more coordinated entity. Uh, another texture says, fully approve of Leo Varadkar's measured response to returning radicalised citizens. There is no need for simplistic, jingoistic calls to ape Britain. Actually, one thing that strikes you when we talk about Shemaima Begum is that there was an official report from the Home Office only last year which detailed the hypothetical example of what would you do if a Bethnal Green style teenager came home and the question was actually that you deal with them in a very sensitive way you ensure safe transit then you investigate for possible crimes and of course that that document was signed by Sajid Javid the Home Secretary and as soon as he has a real life example he immediately then goes for the, the gut response to remove her citizenship And that's that's unfortunate because there, there are two programmes Stop and Prevent that were designed helped designed by imams and leaders within the Islamic community where they were saying exactly those kinds of things but sometimes you know, the political leadership find it expedient to ignore that in order to get the, poli- the short-term political hit. Uh, Declan and Power, Ellen Coyne and John Eiler staying with us. You are listening to On The Record with Gavin Riley here on News Talk. Back with more from the panel in just a moment. On The Record. On News Talk. Karen Bradley or any other British politician would not dare make a comment like that about people who lost relatives in the Grenfell fire or any other great tragedy involving the loss of life in England. But they'll say it about Irish people. That was Michael Finucane speaking to News Talk Breakfast yesterday morning with Susan Kyo, speaking in the aftermath of the comments made in the House of Commons this week by the Northern Secretary of State, Karen Bradley. Um, John Isle, as someone who's able to somewhat extract yourself from the present situation and look at it with a certain amount of an outsider's eye, um, can you in any way rationalise the sort of logic that might have been going through Karen Bradley's head when she oh, said what she did? Don't ask me to do that. Um, no, I mean, look, it's it's pretty appalling to 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 say, you know, Given the sensitivities around everything that happened in Northern Ireland going back, we're talking 50 years nearly now, um, that you can somehow say this this group of people are blameless, this group of people can't be considered criminal in any way, when we all know what happened on on Bloody Sunday and in other situations where innocent people were killed. Mm by soldiers. It's remarkably insensitive. It's historically ignorant, uh, culturally antagonistic. There's not a whole lot of rationalization I'm really willing to do about it. But to me, it really sums up a lot of what we've seen in the last two, two and a half years um, about British attitudes and let's say more specifically British Tory attitudes towards Ireland, this kind of um, malign indifference, I think. Mm. Um, But they do still see it as some kind of an other, that it's not. They they talk about the union. They barely see it at all, right? So they barely see it at all. Um, So I I don't think I carry a a lot of the Irish cultural baggage having not not grown up here. But, you know, I've lived here long enough to to learn a good bit about the relationship between the the two countries. Um, and everything was sort of friendly until there was a bit of a bit of friction, right? So we could mm. we could sort of um, tell ourselves here in Ireland that we were regarded as equal partners within the EU, and that we had a lot in common with the UK, and that our relationship was flourishing and developing. They helped us in the financial crisis, all that kind of. When thing. did that go sour? 
It went sour as soon as the relationship was put to a vote. Um, and we realized just how nativist um, I think English people are. So we mm. shouldn't say British people because the, the vote turned out a lot differently mm. in, in, in uh, Scotland, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland. But, but that English nativism is a very powerful force in the UK. And right now is is driving their political action. So the you know the vote happened uh, two and a half years ago. Now as they're implementing it, we're realizing just how little. I mean, forget about the Republic of Ireland. Just how little Northern Ireland matters um, to the to the Tory establishment, and and how they see it almost as an inconvenience. And what I find absolutely uh, gobsmacking about that, to use a local colloquialism, <laughs> um, is that they're the ones who drew the border in the first place. You know, mm. it's a problem that was created by British Tories, and now they're acting as if somehow it's a problem we're creating for them. So I, I just find it a, a appalling, obnoxious, a terrible betrayal, really. I saw some wry comments uh, the week before last when there was that skirmish between India and Pakistan that once again, that was another British partition that they had just drawn in someone else's country. Yeah, and Israel, else Palestine, had to there's a few of them around. The yeah, from. Yeah. Um, Ellen Cohen, <laughs> I'm not sure which is really worse. The fact that Karen Bradley was able to say what she did and that it took a few hours for her to try and mop it up and then another day to try and mop it up or the fact that within Westminster itself, whatever about the reaction north of the border here, but that in Westminster, there doesn't seem to be any major outcry or sense of horror or aghastness at what she had said. And that they sort of seem to think that with an, an apology or a clarification, you can just make it all go away. Absolutely. And I mean, it was kind of interesting to uh, cast a wry eye over the British coverage of the incident who were just saying, you know, the Irish are offended as if, you know, rather than focusing on the fact that the Northern Ireland Secretary said this. And I suppose the reason that we're all so uneasy is even though Karen Bradley says that she doesn't believe what she said, that those aren't views that she holds, the fear is that it's actually a very accurate representation of the views that some very senior people in British politics hold about Ireland and Northern Ireland and what uh, the British authorities did here. And one of the most unfortunate things that was lost in the coverage of this complete, um, I mean, she made a total hames of it. But the one thing that was really lost was the context that she was speaking in in the British Parliament on Wednesday. She was taking a series of questions about a new law that she is working on with the British uh, Department of Defence, which would effectively bring in what sounds to me like an amnesty, but a 10 year limit on prosecutions for British soldiers, which would be retrospective and would be in bi biased in favour of not prosecuting them unless there was extraordinary new evidence uncovered. Mm. Now, that is something that James Brokenshire was working on. They're trying to use the Stormont House Agreement to do it. The Irish government is absolutely against it. But when I look at the spirit of that legislation, I can't really see a huge difference between the spirit of that law and what she actually said which is the belief that British soldiers were not committing crimes when they were killing innocent, unarmed people. The funny thing is that the one of the clarifications that she made or one of the ways in which she tried to correct it was the immortal phrase that I don't believe that thing that I said, which is <laughs> a, a, a fantastic sequence of words to come out of any politician's mouth. But if you go backwards, actually, we're not entirely sure whether that is the case. Um, we've got hold of some audio this morning of Karen Bradley, again speaking in Westminster, this time a few months ago. This was back in November. Didn't seem to attract much attention at the time, but it is worth playing back now just to see how consistent she has been um, here she is at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee she's been questioned in this clip by a Conservative MP called Bob Stewart who himself is a former soldier uh, listen very closely to the position that he puts to Karen Bradley and then listen to the position that she puts back to him Does that same thing apply to people let out of prison on licence Does that is that international law too? Well, that is a piece of, of statute that was passed in this House yeah. after a referendum of the people of Northern Ireland. So there is a I legal have another position. another referendum, I don't mind, but our soldiers but actually required to be if actually I can, let off the hook if on I, can, I share 
those very strong views. I am outraged by the situation we're in. I want to get to a position where we stop all of that. I am working hard on the consultation responses so that we can find a way that we can deal with this matter so that we can all be happy that our service veterans and our former police officers do not face harassment in the court. So that, in summary then, is Bob Stewart saying our soldiers desire to be let off the hook and Karen Bradley saying, I share those concerns, I do not want veterans to have to face the bother of a court. Which means, uh, Declan, that ultimately it's very difficult not to look at the a few days just gone as an aberration. In fact, she's only giving voice to a position yeah. she's taking quite consistently. Yeah, I I know. And I think in order to try and uh, address this or, or maybe, you know, shed you know more light than heat about it, it's very easy to get into our, our kind of tribal trenches about this. Um, and we're looking backwards as well at something that was, uh, you know, was a very difficult time for these islands. First of all, Karen Bradley, you know, made an absolute hames of it, her wording, whatever, uh, her, her grasp and knowledge. And at this stage, she should have a much better idea. If you think about, I'm just thinking about you know, UN missions where people are expected to hit the ground running to understand minutia mm. uh, in, in conflicts. She's had a year now. So having said that, I think her ultimate point was she was trying to say that, you know, where British uh, security forces had acted, you know, where they had had to use lethal force within the law, you know, the, the but she made a complete uh, hames of that. Mm. Now, that you cast a, a blanket uh, amnesty to it yeah. when in fact there might be individual instances perhaps. And there were and we know that and uh, Bloody Sunday and, and various others the killing of McInespy uh, there was a, another killing uh, involving uh, uh, some joyriders I mean there, there, there are a number and this is the problem if you look at this in the greater uh, complexity of things when you have a civil conflict and you have to introduce uh, conventional troops into that there is always going to be the danger of, of, uh, of unlawful killings because it's very hard to uh, to keep control of troops in a situation where where emotion, fear, a whole variety of things, and maybe downright well, tribalism well, let, let, let get let in the way. Take you up on that though, and we've heard that the phrase being used before by British prime ministers of "a crime is a crime is a crime." Yeah. Uh, so there might be a lot of people at home who might not understand that there could be certain circumstances in which someone in uniform does end up taking the life of a civilian, and that it wouldn't be seen as a crime. So what are the circumstances where that would pertain? Well, let me respond to that with kind of a, an, int- you know, a soldier in this state, uh, one of the basic things that they're taught in use of, uh, you know, application of, you know, firearms in a, in a, in a home domestic situation is, uh, it's called COD6. So, so you can fire live am- ball ammunition, as it's called, live ammunition, in defence of your own life, in defence of your comrade's life, in defence of the po- fo- post protected to stop yourself or your comrade from being forcibly disarmed. Now, the reason for those items is that all of these things, it is thought could lead to loss of innocent life. In other words, if uh, you're you're forcibly disarmed or if your comrade is forcibly disarmed, that weapon can be used at another stage. So therefore, the logic is you may open fire in in that situation or to prevent, um, for instance, material being taken from a post. For example, the Defence Forces used to guard explosives factories. So if those explosives or detonators were stolen, that would lead to loss of life. The idea always Mm. was, I remember a soldier asking a question at a briefing once uh, before an internal security operation. Uh, what if what if you know there was an expectation of confrontation along the border what if uh, somebody opens fire and they're running away and you know you're getting into intricate stuff here well if they're armed and they're running away and they're showing an intent to take life then maybe you can open fire or you could argue they're withdrawing from the field of conflict so maybe you shouldn't open fire and at the end of the day it was made very clear to all of us during that period that you better be able to justify your actions because you could well end up in a court of law so, so just to, to finish one yeah. point here I think the problem with this is 
we're also looking at incidents that have happened uh, in the past. And while it's very, there, then there's a, a sort of a hierarchy of victimhood emerging as well. And it's, it's very unseemly. And I don't think it's helpful to the North in moving forward. We let a lot of people out of jail as part of the Good Friday Agreement, that their hands were still dripping with blood. And, you know, the way the, and I have a lot of people that I would have worked with the, uh, that are connected to the British Armed Forces uh, who look at it from the point of view, now you're trying to get soldiers who may or may not, and, and in this case, we'll say squaddies, guys who are at the bottom of the chain of command to be maybe dragged up in front of a court for something that happened when it should have been dealt with maybe sometime in the 1970s, wasn't dealt with then, you get a sacrificial lamb and it kind of re- so, restores this tribalism and so I, I just think it's unhelpful. D- then what, what do you think then about the decision that's coming up in the next few days about whether to prosecute the Bloody Sunday veterans because a lot of those people might consider themselves to be in similar scenarios where they were at the bottom of a food chain uh, they may have acted in a particular way and that with the mists of time that they might find it very difficult to account exactly for the circumstances or indeed for their own actions and that perhaps you can make the argument therefore that initiating prosecutions there is an antagonistic move that will only yeah. pick off the scabs. Yeah, well, but quite, try telling yeah. that to the victims of the families. Absolutely. And I, I, I hear you and I don't have an easy answer for that. I'm conflicted about it. I heard Eamon McCann being interviewed about it during the week. I don't often agree with him, but he spoke very eloquently about it. And I think on one hand, if there were some prosecutions, uh, maybe it would it would lance the boil uh, that has uh, been you know at, at play within the communities within the people that suffered who and it's it, it is accepted that uh, innocent people were murdered on that day. On the other hand, McCann makes this point: there was far more to it than just a, a few uh, paras uh, just taking pot shots. There's decisions that were made. Why were the paras deployed there in the first place? There was any amount of English regiments, British regiments that could have been used. They would have been far more suited. They, they weren't shock troops. Uh, decisions that were made at a tactical level, at a strategic level, people. In in other words, with a lot more braid on their shoulders that have questions to answer. And unfortunately, it is my belief and the belief of others that if there is a trial and convictions, none of those guys will be asked to account. It'll be some guy, private so-and-so, Lance Corporal so-and-so, uh, maybe 72 years of age, will end up going to prison for two years or less. And I don't know, it seems just cosmetic. Um, on the, the point that, that John made, uh, or Declan made, John, and sorry again to, to cast you in the role as, as token <laughs> outsider, but um, what do you think of, of that question mark about, you know, families who have been pursuing justice for so many decades now versus the question of whether society can ever move on unless you just leave well alone? To me, it's hard to imagine um, moving forward without a sense of justice, right? So as long as you feel that you've been unjustly treated and that your pain hasn't been adequately recognized by the authorities responsible for it, I don't see how you can how you can actually move on. And I think the reason we still have this festering problem with, say, the real IRA or the new IRA or whatever we're, we're calling them is, is partly because of that and partly because of other dynamics of radicalization. But there is still an available narrative for these people to latch onto, which is that we were dealt with unjustly and it has never been properly resolved. So I think whether that's a criminal prosecution or not, the, the resolution has to come. But I don't think we should see this only as a matter of, of uh, things that happened in the 70s or 80s. Like the, the current context is very important to how people are understanding these statements by Karen Bradley and how we're, we're going to view, um, you, you know, the, the resolution of, of Bloody Sunday. And again, that context is Brexit. That context is what is going to happen to mm. Northern Ireland in a few weeks. Um, what is the relationship of the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland going mm. to be in a post-Brexit world? Um, how is the UK going to continue dealing with Northern Ireland going going forward? And you can see circumstances developing in which it's not inconceivable that the security situation is going is going to go backwards up there. Mm. And that, for me, is the important context, less than, you know, looking back 40 or 50 years. Um, 
Ellen, to finish with you, you throw all of those items into the mix and then you find the uh, the Supreme Court ruling in the Pat Finucane case uh, quite recent enough as well, which is obviously why Michael Finucane was speaking to News Talk Breakfast yesterday as well. You throw all of those things into the mix and then you find it very difficult to justify any kind of bespoke solution where you decide to initiate prosecutions in one case and not do it across the board, which means that there isn't really any silver bullet here, if you pardon the unfortunate pun. Uh, no, there isn't. And I, I mean, that is quite obvious. But I, I suppose one of the things that I would be most afraid of um, heading into this week is it's already, already been made quite clear that if there is, is a decision to prosecute um, some of the soldiers involved in Bloody Sunday, we've already seen people like Boris Johnson and co kind of do have their dog whistles out already and have already started describing it as a witch hunt before the decision was even made. And I think it is important to remember, you know, John Moon he has a piece in the Sunday Times today which points out that uh, Savile, the Savile inquiry did mm. find that some of these sh- soldiers were firing on people knowing and not caring that there was no threat. And when you're talking about that idea of justice and kind of reconciliation, I think it's probably very hard for some of those victims to find that when they hear something like the interview on the BBC last week from one of the soldiers involved in Bloody Sunday who still described it as a job well done and said that he would do it all again. I find it very difficult personally to figure out how they're going to reconcile the idea of the Supreme Court saying that there hadn't been an effectively empowered prosecution in the Pat Vanuken case and then perhaps decide to, to let this one lie where it is. Uh, we'll be watching that very closely when the decision is made this week. Uh, you're listening to On the Record with Gavin Riley on News Talk. Back with more from our panel in just a moment. On the Record. On News Talk. After the defeat by 230, clearly Brussels was shocked. You could see that. And the tenor of the language changed. Mr. Varadkar's language changed. Mr. Juncker's language changed. They didn't give us anything new. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And it all changed. Uh, the former Brexit Secretary David Davis speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC within the last hour or so. Ellen Coyne, he seems to be making the case that basically the EU is buckling and bending and that if the UK just holds firm, uh, that everything will be bloody well all right. I hadn't actually heard that quote until now and had to stifle my la- la- like laughter on microphone. He is absolutely talking through his hoop. That, that never, ever, ever happened. Uh, every 11.46, Sunday- <laughs> first instance of the word hoop. Continue. Every time, every Sunday morning when we look at the Telegraph or, you know, um, tune into some of the British press, we are invited into a parallel universe where everything appears to be going fine. And on Tuesday, when Theresa May uh, faces another vote on her, her poor misfortunate deal, it will be the most extraordinary and embarrassing Tuesday she's had since the last time she tried to hold a vote on the same deal um, a, a while ago. And I can see in the papers today, you can kind of, when you're reading from these European U- Union sources and either even Irish government ones, the sentence of gritted teeth and exasperation about talking about, is it better to give them the maximum possible 21 month uh, extension to try mm. and get their mm. get themselves together or which I don't see them going for no or is the three month one just going to be this same thing repeated over and over and over again doesn't inspire confidence when you hear uh, sound bites like that from as I said a parallel universe uh, Declan we were saying off air that you know Einstein's definition of madness is repeating the same thing over and over and expecting mm. a different result this is effectively the same deal that she didn't even put to a vote in November or December it's the same deal she did put to a vote in January and was handed the heaviest defeat that any Prime Minister has ever suffered in parliamentary history yeah. and now she's putting exactly the same deal back to the floor again on Tuesday hoping somehow that the sands have shifted which they appear not to be well true but uh, she's not the only one at that Michelle Barnier was coming out with uh, offers ex- offers that were 
redolent of the same thing as well in terms mm. of, uh, you know, you don't have to stay in the customs union, but the North does. So, you know, I, where I look at this, I, I see ourselves, we're like a little bit of kind of, uh, you know, cigarette paper stuck between two big, big blocks. And um, yeah, I, I do, I've, I've been paying attention to a lot of what Dan O'Brien has been writing over the last while, uh, where he was saying that, you know, as a, as a state, we should be thinking about what, what do we want out of this and trying to influence it. And I, I'm not sure we really are. We're kind of now a, a very convenient stick for Europe to be able to uh, to beat the Brits mm. uh, on this, uh, and we see it through that. I and mean, with people sending cards to to EU apparatchiks saying it's great, Europe's borders are uh, our borders, yeah. or words to that effect. Which I hope we should remember that maybe a few years down the road when we're being reminded that uh, uh, some uh, Latvia or Estonia or whatever their borders, if they're under threat, are our borders now as well, and the implications of that. You know, so I think that. I don't know, are we doing enough to try and influence a kind of an outcome here uh, that would suit us? I mean, would it be too imaginative or too too negative or whatever to say that if the Brits want to date on it, why not say, we'll say, okay, 10 years, this exists because surely they'll have the trade deal worked out. If it actually, because do we want to kind of hold on to the backstop? I think this was a point that Dan O'Brien made before. So we hold on to the backstop at all costs and then, or, you know, insist that it be... uh, worded the way it's worded and then the whole thing becomes a no deal and we've burnt the house down. Um, John, Alan made the point in a, in a roundabout way that effectively the British papers are gaslighting the British public by suggesting that this is exactly where things are going and that if the UK only holds firm everything will be fine. Is there not a certain degree of gaslighting on the European side too, particularly if the the last great breakthrough after uh, Europe deciding not to effectively offer anything new for months and months and months that the big belated breakthrough by Michel Barnier who may be listening today because he's on his way to the rugby is effectively to offer Britain something that they themselves have already ruled out. Mm. Well, the, the the difference is I, I don't think the EU is trying to convince everybody that it's all going to be fine and in, in fact better once this catastrophe unfolds. So the, the, that's the, the main difference is that I think the UK media hasn't actually reckoned with the implications. And this is going back to the, the campaign leading up to the vote, the Brexit, it, that it just wasn't taken actually, it wasn't taken seriously, mm. really, and ventilated properly so that one people could have an informed vote. And then... But we are where we are now. Yes, we are. We, we are where we are. So look, I, I mean, I kind of admire the um, the, the stubbornness there, mm. which is, you know, if we just keep a straight face and keep going, um, we can we can brazen this one out. But we have been equally stubborn on our side, and by we, I mean the EU 27 too, where we have insistently said, right, well, it's up to Britain to budge from its red lines first, and then we will. But if we do want there to be a deal, and everyone seems, by and except for a minority in Westminster, everyone wants there to be a deal. But it doesn't seem like we are doing very much to try and achieve one. Sure, but don't you think the EU, which is you know a stickler for procedure, rightly sees that this was a vote that was taken by the UK, wasn't taken by the EU, and that it is for them to make a proposal um, about how they're going to implement this in the end, and that the EU will facilitate that insofar as possible, but will always look out for the interests of its own member states. And because of subsidiarity, the interests of Ireland are the interests of the EU. Mm officially, even if that's not really true. Uh, We have a couple of minutes left and I do want to pick your brains very briefly on something we are going to come back to in the next hour, which is the uh, aftermath of the Michael Jackson documentary Leaving Neverland uh, earlier in the week and the question mark of how we sort of deal with things like that where uh, allegations are made and someone isn't around necessarily to defend themselves anymore. Um, Ellen, there is... There seems to be immediately a binary response where half of the internet thinks Michael Jackson is innocent. This is outrageous. I'm going to enjoy my copy of Thriller. And there's half of the internet that says that anyone against whom allegations of that severity are made needs to just be dropped from our cultural memory. 
Yeah, and there was a lot of stories about, you know, radio stations deciding to not play Michael Jackson anymore. Um, I do think it's really gross that anybody who wants to come forward and talk about sexual abuse that they have suffered now has to go through this sort of, these accusations of this imaginary financial gain, which is kind of levelled at the people who came forward in that documentary. I suppose for all of us more broadly, like beyond whether or not we want to keep Michael Jackson's back catalogue, it's this extremely disturbing case because when I heard that there was a documentary about Michael Jackson, I wasn't like, oh, what's it about? Like this is something that was yeah. in the social ether for a long, long time. And um, Brendan O'Connor makes a really good point, which I will now plagiarise in the Sunday Independent today, where he kind of draws a camp- comparison, which I kind of balked at first between Michael Jackson and priests. But then when you look at it closely, he talks about how flattered and privileged families used to be to be kind of ensconced in priests when they held a role in Irish society. Mm. And there's a clear parallel there with the families who... I say this as sensitively as I can, kind of offered up their children and made them available to Michael Jackson for huge unsupervised amounts of time because it's really flattering and amazing a- to have a Acting in good faith, not acting thinking that they would ever be in a good faith. Yeah, because it is really like flattering and amazing to have someone that powerful to take an interest in your family, have the idea that this could be something that kind of changes your life. Um, and he kind of makes the point that maybe is celebrity a kind of cancer where people get to this uh, pedestal-like position where they can't be challenged. And I suppose, yes, the reason that the massive... Um, you know, amount of people accused in the Me Too movement have been celebrities, people working in Hollywood and that sort of thing. And yes, that is because powerful, rich women have a bigger platform to call that stuff out rather than normal women. But also because there's a huge theme in people who become massively successful and basically unchallenged being able to do this in plain sight, essentially. Uh, John Isle, uh, very briefly, uh, the question mark of dropping Michael Jackson off radio playlists forever. Your thoughts? Um, I, I, th- I think um, the New York Times Daily podcast made the point that he's he's so completely woven into the fabric of pop culture, it's it's impossible to eliminate him, right? Mm. So it'd be hard to listen to his music without feeling a certain guilt or shame yeah. associated with it. But like, I'm not sure how purging it really changes anything that happened. I mean, Brendan O'Connor actually went went further than you're saying, Ellen. He said, Michael Jackson groomed all of us. He groomed the entire world, all of his fans, the millions of people who bought his records and point. sort of in, indulged his eccentricities as mere eccentricities instead of like deep, yeah. mm. deep weirdness, which is what they were. I mean, look, we live in a world where um, Hitler's very bad paintings are still being auctioned, yeah. right? So, you know, the, the idea that we're going to sort of throw all the Michael Jackson stuff overboard there's a buck to be made there. I don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, look, I'm very ambivalent about it. He's a gross guy. Declan, I have five <laughs> seconds for you to offer your thoughts. It, look, it's a dangerous precedent. He's dead. I mean, I prefer to see these things be dealt with in a court of law before we start to enforce some blanket censorship. You mentioned the Nazis. We still talk, people still refer to Lenny Riefenstahl's skill in creating a Triumph of the Will, mm. a famous propaganda film. You can't just throw those things out overnight. You you refer to them and you keep them in context. And, and I think that's what will happen with Jackson. And Albert uh, Speer was a great back. architect and all of that too. I'm afraid we're, we're completely out of time. We are going to have to leave it there. But a huge thank you to all of you for coming in this morning. Ellen, Coyne, senior reporter with the Times Ireland edition, John Isle, former markets editor of the Sunday Business Post, now head of communications for Good Body, and Declan Power, security analyst, former member of the Irish Defence Forces. Thank you all very much for joining me. On the record, on, the record. on News Talk.